The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Ann Fischel, author of Home for Dinner, Mixing Food, Fun, and Conversation for a Happier Family and Healthier Kids. Uh, Dr. Fischel is a founding member of the Family Dinner Project team, is a family therapist, clinical psychologist, an associate clinical professor of psychology at the Harvard Medical School. She is director of the Family and Couples Therapy Program at Massachusetts General Hospital, where she trains child and adult psychiatry residents in family therapy. Um, her new book, Home for Dinner, Mixing Food, Fun, and Conversation for a Happier Family and Healthier Kids, uh, talks about, and this is really important, if we could lower rates of obesity, break the cycle of alcoholism, decrease the incidence of, of teenage or teen pregnancy, and build literacy all with one simple fix, shouldn't we all try it? Um, Dr. Fischel, Ph.D., Harvard University Medical School professor, as I said, and founder of the Family Dinner Project and author of Home for Dinner, uh, Mixing Food, Fun, and Conversation for a Happier Family and health, Healthy Kids, has hard numbers to prove that eating dinner as a family does all of those things and more. It's good for the health, the brain, and the spirit of all family members. So welcome to the show, Dr. Fischel. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. I have to say, I I mean, the book is it covers a lot of topics, obviously, but family dinners, how are family dinners going to solve all of these problems? Um, first, we have to, I suppose, read the book, obviously, read your <laughs> book, but, <laughs> Home for Dinner. But seriously, I mean, those are big, huge the problems that we have today, obesity and drug addiction and, uh, you know, all of the things that we just mentioned, but how is a family dinner going to help that? Yes, well, I can't say it's it's quite as simple as your intro made it sound, yes. <laughs> although it is a, you know, if I had to say to families, what's one thing that you could do? I would say forget about going to family therapy, but just go home and make family dinner every night. And that will be the most protective, preventative, powerful, positive thing that you can do. But that said, it matters a lot what the quality of the atmosphere is like at the dinner table. You know, the the wonderful benefits um, of better grades and better nutrition and lower obesity rates and uh, less high-risk teenage behavior, as you were mentioning, like substance abuse and teenage pregnancy and truancy and all of that, 
doesn't come about if parents are sitting in stony silence or they're yelling at their kids or the children don't feel free to talk. So it's very much dependent on the atmosphere being warm and engaged at the table. Um, And I should also say it it doesn't have to be dinner. Um, It could be breakfast uh, if that works out better for a family schedule. Uh, or the even quality a few of the, dinners the and a it, Saturday Fisher, lunch. Mm-hmm. It could yes. be breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And it's, then what you're saying also is the quality of the dinner. It's not just sitting down for dinner, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, not talking to one another. Uh, you, you know, if you're on your computer, cell phone, and no one's saying anything, it's not just eating the dinner. It's much that's more right. complicated than that's that. That's right. I mean, I think that the the sort of the magic behind the dinner. Um, as I've come to think about it, as I work with families in my practice, and as I've thought about my own two sons and, and, and raising them, I think what is really makes for this powerful stew of a family dinner is that it, it is the one time of the day that families reliably can connect with one another. You know, we no longer plant potatoes together or stitch quilts on the front porch, dinner really is the time of day that we can put our technology aside and really focus on each other. And but I think when we get kids... into the specifics of the family, we'll call it family dinner and yes, sure. breakfast or lunch, but what about in terms of practical, I mean, you're in practical terms because, I mean, you're a therapist, you see families all the time. How many families actually forget about the quality of the dinner? sit down and have dinner together. You know, you've got one kid doing one activity and one kid's got swimming practice and the other one has band practice and uh, one or two, one of the parents or maybe both parents have to work late. So, Sure. Yeah, there, the, there's yeah. so many obstacles. I mean, you've, you've mentioned the, the primary one, which is time. Parents and kids' busy schedules. They're, we're busier now than I think we've ever been. Um, and, you know, there are other obstacles, too, Kids can be finicky eaters. Adults can be finicky eaters. Um, parents don't have the cooking skills that they did a generation ago. Um, so all of these things can get in the way. But I think um, what I like to emphasize is ways to make it a, a lighter lift. You know, the benefits don't come from spending three hours on making dinner. They don't come from using organic arugula. Uh, the actual making of the dinner can be quite simple, and it's fine to use shortcuts um, to bake in batches so that you have frozen food ready the following week so that you don't have to make a full dinner every night. It's really important, I think, to get help, to ask if you have an adult partner in the house, to ask him or her to help, to start teaching your kids so that eventually they can be uh, helpers. Um, I found by the time my my boys were teenagers, they were um, making about half the meals side by side with me. It was actually very enjoyable because it kind of extended the time I got to talk with them. But they insisted on making meat, which I never have made. Um, And so they started to really help with the the dinner making. And so then you're cooking together and talking together and all kinds of things may or may not come up. Exactly. Yeah. 
So um, but I, I just want to say another in. thing. Let's say people who live in cities, in New York City, people are always ordering in. I mean, that too, someone can be responsible for doing that as long as you're sitting together and eating the food together at the same table. Yes. I mean, it's certainly... Um, I know my favorite meal as a tired working mother was uh, Friday night when I would take a nap, and when I woke up, my kids and husband would have gone and gotten takeout, and I just dreamed about that meal all week. Um, so I certainly get what a what a treat that is. The only thing I would say about a regular diet of takeout is that it tends to be more expensive, and it tends to be much less healthy and higher in calories, higher in fat and salt and sugar. So I, I think what I hear you saying is it doesn't, we don't have to do all or nothing. It doesn't mean sitting down at the family dinner as a five-course meal with everything is homemade. It also doesn't mean that you're doing takeout every night either, the balance. Exactly. Yeah. And so but you talk very specifically, and that's what I want to talk about in the yes. book, about what is the quality of this dinner? What are the conversation? And certain conversations lead to other conversations. So, because I think that's really, I mean, and you point out a lot of, uh, you know, the different topics that one might approach at different ages, depending on the kids' ages. Of course, you could have five kids all different ages. So, sure, yeah, sure. But, um, no, yeah. I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, while food is kind of the on ramp to family dinner. I mean, you, you can't have family dinner without food. Um, it's really just what gets everybody to the table, but it's these other things, the conversation and, and games that we can play at the dinner table. Those are the things that keep us at the table and, and keep it really enjoyable. Um, and so, you know, one thing I would just start out by saying is it can be uh, fun to try some other ways to ask your kids about their day, you know, beyond how was your day, which tends to, I don't know, in, in my household, I would get a, a monosyllabic answer to that. Uh, and so I have a lot of suggestions in my book about how to mix that up, how to bring in some more variety. Like you might ask uh, everybody to say a rose, uh, a thorn, and a bud from their day. A rose would be something positive that happened. A thorn would be something kind of challenging. And a bud is something you hope will happen tomorrow. And, you know, that just kind of changes it up a little bit. Or um, a conversation starter of asking each person to say two things that really happened and one thing that they made up. And you have to guess which is the made-up thing. But and then you, you sort of get stories started at the table that way. Yes. How do you make it so that it's, I mean, as you're describing that, it sounds a little bit like, okay, now I have to sit down and answer questions, and I want to just sit and relax with my family. I mean, I don't want to, you know, that, mm -hmm. talk, you know, yeah, and so do we have to, you know, actually be on the spot for answering those questions if I don't feel like it, if you know, I mean, for whatever reasons, and everybody at the table's had a different kind of a day. So um, what do you do with, you know, somebody, you know, I just don't want to talk about it. I'm tired. I just want to eat. And I assume you go on to next and let whoever wants to talk, talk. Of course. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants to no be pressure. peppered with questions um, while they're trying to relax and, relaxing and de-stressing is one of the terrific 
components of a family dinner, so I certainly wouldn't want to raise the anxiety and have it feel like a, a quiz show. Um, I think as readers sort of read the book, what I'm kind of imagining is that it's like looking around in your cabinet and pulling out uh, a can of tomato sauce that might spice up your meal. You know, there, as you look through, you might say, oh, now that conversation starter would be fun for our family, or I just know that one wouldn't work. My kids would just never go for that. Um, so I hope there's enough sort of variety in there that there's something uh, for everybody that might spice things up a little bit. Well, I think there is in the book because you talk very specifically about what to talk to toddlers about, teenagers, uh, even, I guess, um, family members who may be ill or uh, dinner with older family members. So, I mean, you may have a whole variety of a uh, whole range depending, obviously, on the family. And that was the other question. Like, you have big families, and, and what about if you have uh, a single mom and, and a kid? Is that different? Um, or is it just it's, it's the same kind of family dinner? Yes. I think a, uh, a very small gathering of a single parent and one child can be quite challenging um, to keep the conversation lively and interesting. Um, I know one family that I worked with um, would bring things in to, to read to each other, and then they would discuss that. Um, you know, not every dinner, but that was another way of kind of bringing in another voice. Um, so, you know, it, it often requires some extra creativity uh, to keep things um, kind of engaged. Well, another of family I know with a single parent would have Wednesday night be um, all of our friends come over night for dinner. So they would have a kind of extended family and friends in the middle of the week, a potluck dinner, you know, not too hard, but that it, it would, um, you know, make for a big family dinner at least once a week. One of the, and, and I also, I thought, found very interesting, you, you talk about extending the dinner table to the wide world. I really liked that and very specific about that. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't think I ever did this when my kids were growing up, but you, you, you say use dinner as a passport to cultural experiences. How do you do that? What do you mean by that? Yes, well, you know, there are a couple of ways I mean that. One is literally in, the, in cooking foods from other countries. And, you know, it's become so much easier with the Internet to Google South African food or Dutch food or, you know, maybe your child is studying Argentina. And so you have your child talk to you about that, and together you look up a recipe from Argentina and cook that. So that, that would be one way. Another way that, that we've done in our family um, is inviting people from other cultures to dinner. Um, my husband runs a program for international students at Boston University, and every fall we have 15 people from, many from China, but from all over the world, who are very homesick and um, very much missing their parents and a home-cooked meal. And even though our food is unfamiliar to them, um, you know, it's nice, I think, for them to sit around a, a family's table 
And so they come over. We make usually make a Thanksgiving dinner in September for them. And we find out all kinds of things, you know, who's considered family uh, in their homes, uh, what is a celebration like, what kind of food do they serve when they have a celebration, what do they eat when they feel sick, what do they eat when they need comfort, um, what time of day do they eat dinner, is dinner the biggest meal in their country, um, and so this is, you know, food can be a, a, an entree to finding out so much about what's important to a person a and, of course, to their family. A simple way of having a cultural exchange program. Um, um, and as you said, well, you mentioned Thanksgiving, but I suppose you can do this throughout the year. It doesn't have to be some special meal necessarily. Right. Um, yeah, you know, I all... think you could go to your, you know, your local university and see if there are international students who... Um, would like to come over for dinner. You know, I think there are a lot of ways that uh, you could do it or through your public school. There are often um, kids who are visiting for the year from, from another country. Uh, some of the and I'm not going to go through each one of the bullet points because there are a lot, and people, listeners will have to read the book to get the whole thing. But one of the other things you talk about is preventing uh, food waste at home. That's another way of uh, ex- talking about extending the dinner table to the wide world. Now, so what do you mean by that? Yes, I was just astounded um, when I was researching this book about the statistics about food waste um, from the NRDC, the National Research Defense Council. turns out that 40% of the food that we produce in this country gets thrown out, or to make it more particular to a family of four, a uh, family of four throws out the equivalent of $2,000 worth of food um, each year. So, you know, it's it's very concrete, uh, the, the topic of, of food waste. And there are lots of ways that kids and parents can be encouraged to think about it. You know, how are we going to use these leftovers? And... Um, can we use these food scraps to start a compost pile that will help fertilize food that we might grow later in the year? Um, and what is the meaning of expiration dates? Do we really have to throw this milk out? Um, do we really understand the expiration dates or the, the save-by or the do-by dates? Um, those tend to be more conservative, really, than than is necessary. Yeah, I always wondered about those myself. I'm yeah. always debating, do I throw this can away or do I keep it? Is it too conservative and I could keep it another couple months? That's a, that, that's a good one. Yeah. Another thing you say, Dr. Fischel, is eating, eat lower on the food chain. Yes. Um, yeah, so make this, this another at your family um, dinner. Another statistic from the NRDC that if Americans ate a quarter less of red meat a week, it would be the equivalent of taking off the road six to eight million cars um, because of the the methane emissions that um, are required to raise cattle. Um, So, you know, there in one fell swoop by eating one vegetarian meal or even a fish meal a week, you eat more healthily, but you also are doing something to to help our, our planet. 
another one of the, and I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, sure. one of the issues that you tackle, and I think most of us are, have had children, uh, which includes toddlers and teenagers, and you say those are the most kind of difficult group or demographic to satisfy at dinner. Um, they're, they're, they're tough, and uh, you have certain approaches or practices that might work to help us be able to make dinner appetizing um, for the toddlers and the teenagers. I mean, teenagers, well, you, uh, you, you're the expert, so tell us, how can we do that? People, you know, you're sitting there with your toddlers, usually they're crying or they don't want to eat or they're fussy. And I remember one of my boys, I have three grown boys, uh-huh. he never wanted one food, one group of food couldn't touch the other group. And if it touched, then he couldn't eat it. That was, <laughs> if the yes, that, the, I, that's the a very chicken, common, then, uh, um, we had to get a new plate. Yes. Yeah, I spoke to a pediatrician about that once, and she said she thinks the culprit are separator plates that we use with young kids, and that sort of teaches kids that they're supposed to keep their foods separate. So she she said never use separator plates. Okay. Um, But I think one thing that's great about toddlers is that they tend to be less picky um, than somewhat older kids. So there's this kind of window of more adventurous eating, not for all toddlers, but for many before the age of four. And then four to eight kind of ushers in a much more conservative time of life where kids tend to be, if they're going to be picky, that, that would be the time they would get uh, pickier. So, you know, I think with toddlers and with teenagers, really with all age kids, one of the tricks is to try to make them stakeholders in the the dinner making. Um, and toddlers are often very happy to, to join in with clattering pots or being at the sink with water play or making their own little concoctions or helping to stir the soup or crumble the cheese, whatever it might be. And I think when kids feel that they've had a part in making dinner, they're much more likely to want to eat their own creations. And I think the other thing is, and you do mention in this book, I mean, there are different expectations for different age groups. And I I think you, you, you talk about letting children play with their food, being messy. I always did that, and I always thought that was a good thing. And I have to say... Um, validating your suggestion. It worked for me. I have a son who's a filmmaker, another one who's a design engineer. So all that playing, all that playing really yeah. was put to good use. Exactly. Yeah, I, I'm such a big proponent of the idea of, of playing with your food. Um, you know, partly because it's just, it's fun, but also because we have so few opportunities anymore to do things with our hands and that use all our senses, but and to do things all together as a family. And food, you know, with its textures and its smells and its colors, is is like a, you know, artist, artist's dream. Um, and so, you know, I think there are ways of playing with shape, of, you know, making shapes out of pretzel dough or making... Uh, dumpling shapes. There are ways of playing with color, um, of you know having a meal that's all one color or a rainbow of colors, or putting out the salad fixings and asking everybody to pick their own ingredients and make a face on their plate or a car or a, a flower. And then you know the only rule is you have to eat your own creation. Um, 
as the cookbook writer Marcella Hazen said, cooking is an art, but you can eat it too. Um, which is a, a quote I just I love. Yeah, that's what um, that. And it it also it, uh, can build scientific inquiry. Um, I had the opportunity to go to a food and science camp um, at Harvard that is given each year for ten year olds, and there was a pickling master. And he taught a little bit of science about pickling, um, how the sugar, uh, the microbes eat the microbes which produce lactic acid. And then you can alter the, the few ingredients that are involved in pickling and the time you allow to pickle something and experiment in all kinds of ways with pickling ice cream and avocados and onions, of course, um, and, uh, you know, by testing out, changing one variable here or there, um, you're really engaging kids in the scientific process. Dr. Um, Fischel, now you are out family therapist, uh, Harvard Medical School, and I'm a social worker, so I just want to spend a few more minutes. Uh, you know, we've been talking about, I think, relatively healthy families, but obviously mm-hmm. in your practice you see not-so-healthy families. Sure. And for them, mixing food, fun, and conversation may be a lot more difficult. And can you give us, like, an example? Well, what do you do if you have a child, let's say, who's anorexic or you have a child who really is acting out uh, and acts out at every meal? Um, you know, as a social worker, they always told us that you were able to go to a home and sit down with a family and have dinner with them. Mm-hmm. That's worth six that's worth probably even more than six visits in your office because you really can see how a family functions, whether it's, you know, whether they are a healthy family or dysfunctional. So um, I'm just curious how that fits into, like, some of the suggestions you have in the book. Yes, I, I, I would love to be able to visit some of the families that I work with in my practice. I'd love to visit them at home. Um, I don't get to do that. Sometimes I'll ask them to um, kind of role-play a dinner, sort of we'll set up a dinner in my office and sort of pretend that we're having dinner all together, but that's not quite the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of family dinner almost as a an annex to my office where something that we're talking about in therapy, I might say to them, how about if you try what we're doing in here, you try it at the dinner table the next few nights, and then next week, come in and and tell me how it went. So, for example, a family um, might find that they're very uh, critical of each other, or the kids might complain, you know, you never say anything nice about me. You're, you're always on my case. And so we might work on that in my office. And then I might say, how about if you try at dinner to say, for each of you to say something admiring or positive or um, generous about each other? And if anybody slips up, that person will have to do the dishes. You know, so I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit playful with them. Um, but it, it's a family dinner is, is kind of a, a laboratory. It's a place to try out some new behavior. 
Yeah, and it's a microcosm it comes up every of how week. the family gets along, uh, even when they're not at the family at the table at the dinner table. Is that true? I'm sorry, I, I, I missed the I beginning. Gonna, I say it's kind of like the, a microcosm of what happens, the flat family dynamics. It all happens right there at the dinner table. Like you're giving the example, the kids Absolutely. saying, "Well, my mother or father or both of them are always picking on us." Right. So, yeah, which is probably what happens when they're not having dinner as well. Ex- you know, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but since dinner is the time when they're all together, it's it's also the best time to try to change that dynamic. In the couple minutes we have left, do you have a specific example of how, uh, how really um, using the family dinner, as we've been talking about, has really improved a family? Um, you know, just a case history, just a, a, an example of that, of, of family coming into you and really being quite dysfunctional and then using the family dinner to, to really help them to have a more healthy relationship and connection with each other. Um, let me just think, you know, some of the examples actually take place around the um, making something different happen with the the cooking, um, where somebody might feel, uh, I'm thinking of a, of a couple that I write about in the, the book, where the they had been very, it was a, an academic couple who had worked very closely with one another, and then the woman got very depressed and um, kind of withdrew, and her husband withdrew from her. And he kept making dinner uh, for the family, but he didn't want her in the kitchen with him. And um, and one of the things that we worked on was getting them to... Uh, play together, to collaborate together in the kitchen. Um, and I did this in a, in a variety of ways that I, that I describe in the book, but um, after the second pass at this, on the way out of the session, the man said to me, um, did we mention that we're collaborating on a paper together? And I thought, well, you know, maybe it's a coincidence, but probably it's not that what started in the kitchen uh, with him allowing her in and they're trying a new way of cooking together and um, playing together, uh, that that probably started something, um, as you say, that, that didn't just take place at the dinner table, but started them collaborating again um, as, uh, as fellow um, intellectuals and academics. That's a great story, a great, and we have to end our interview. That's a great example, and obviously for more examples, and I mean, there's so much more in your book, so obviously I I do uh, recommend the book, Home for Dinner, Mixing Food, Fun, and Conversation for a Happier Family and Healthier Kids. Uh, Dr. Ann K. Fischel, Ph.D., co-founder of the Family Dinner Project, and and the website is thefamilydinnerproject.org. Right. You can go to that website. Yes. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Oh, thank you, Catherine. It was a pleasure. Great to have you. We are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is Caroline L. Arnold. Caroline is author of the book Small Move, Big Change, Using Micro-Resolutions to Transform Your Life Permanently, which is a big job. Uh, Caroline has been a technology leader on Wall Street for more than a decade, leading software development teams as large as 500 technologists, and she has received the Wall Street and Technology Award for creating the Google IPO auction platform, and her name appears on several patents pending, and she's a managing director at Goldman Sachs. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Caroline. Oh, Catherine, thank you for having me on. Okay, I just want to read a little intro here because it says 90% of resolvers annually fail at the New Year's resolutions. Most of us begin the year enthusiastically vowing to lose weight, get organized, make time for our families, or arrive on time to work. Yet just weeks into the new year, which is about right now, our willpower craters, our old routines creep back, and finally we give up on our resolutions altogether. And enter your book, Small Move, Big Change, Using Micro-Resolutions to Transform Your Life Permanently. And what, what I get from your book, and I, it's really, I, it seems so simple, but boy, it seems like it would really work. We just got to get mm. out of those old 
resolutions that don't work and kind of reframe them in a different right. way, and then we'll be able to follow through. So uh, how do we do that? Yeah, well, you know, you're right. It, it is that time of year when most people fail at their resolution. Ninety percent of people fail at them. I was one of those failures every year, and I couldn't really understand, gee, how is it possible that I could get all these big things done at work and I can juggle my family and home life, but the few things I really want to do, you know, for myself, for self-improvement, somehow um, my willpower gives out. And, and um, you know, I began experimenting one year. I decided to make a different resolution than I had made before because I thought the problem was maybe that I was always um, resolving to lose weight and exercise more, and that was just so hard. I should just try something different. And I tried to be organized. And really, if you sort of listen to the language we use when we – when we make resolutions, we generally pledge to be someone else, to be on time, to be organized, to be thin by summer, you know. All of these things are, are really, really closer to wishes than they are to plans of action. And in that particular year, I made the resolution to be organized, and I failed at that one, too. And at that point, yeah, you know, I went out and I got all of the organizers, desk organizers. I color-coded files. I caught up on everything. I high-fived myself for having finally achieved a New Year's resolution, and two months later it looked as bad as it had before I had begun. And so I really took a step back then, and I realized that it wasn't just that it was hard to lose weight or to get fit. It was, it's, it's hard to change. And if I wasn't going to be successful in sort of a wholesale change, waking up the next day and being an organized person, right, what was one change I could make that I could succeed at? And I ended up really sort of reverse engineering my behavior around organization, isolating sort of, if you will, sort of one behavioral bug in my routine, because we're all running on routines, and I, I nailed it, and that was really just to keep all my notes in one notebook. It sounds so modest, like such a modest goal, but I had notes everywhere. I had notes in different notebooks on pads. I had notes at home. I had notes in my handbag. And forcing myself to keep that one behavioral change and just focusing all my willpower on that, I was able to break through, and what felt, you know, as very sort of awkward behavior when I first started practicing, it became second nature. Um, and I thought... One day I realized, gee, I'm more organized because of this. I took that same sort of model, and I decided to try a weight loss one, and I made one very limited resolution, which was never to eat a conference room cookie again. I didn't say I would never eat cookies again. I didn't say I would never eat in a conference room cookie, but we're, uh, uh, in a conference room again. But I said I'm not going to eat those cookies that just appear in the conference room unbidden and that I end up eating two or three of. And I succeeded at that. And so bit by bit I developed a system for sort of always isolating the next behavioral change, channeling my willpower against it, and then moving on. And I was able to make progress sort of in every area doing that. How much weight did you lose? <laughs> I've lost 22 pounds. I'm the fittest I've ever been. Um, I didn't count a single calorie to do it um, because I basically isolated it to behavioral change. So, for instance, I said, okay, I'm not going to eat while I make dinner. Your previous guest was talking about making dinner. I would come home, I'd be hungry, I'd be making dinner, and I'd have a glass of wine, I'd eat a piece of French bread, you know, I might sample things as I go along. And then by the time I sat down to eat dinner, I had really probably already consumed, you know, quite a few calories, and then I ate the whole meal anyway. So that's an easy change to make, right? Some people eat when they're cleaning up dinner. You know, they're, they're clearing plates and they see food they worked hard at or something, and they don't want to go to waste, and they, they eat there. Some people 
eat in the car going home. You know, they get the Frappuccino for the car going home. So, you know, one of them was not to eat while making dinner. At a certain point, I stopped eating after uh, eating after dinner. I ate what I was going to eat, even though I was going to have dessert. I had that, and then I was done. One had to do with eating a better breakfast, eating the breakfast earlier. And I just made these behavioral changes that I could sustain for a lifetime. That's really the goal, you know. Can you sustain it for a lifetime? The first rule of a micro-resolution is don't make resolutions you can't keep. If you don't think you can do it forever most of the time, then don't say you're going to do it. And I think people say, well, you know, I've got to just change everything. Yeah, but can you change one thing and succeed with it? It's amazing how transformative these changes are. I've made changes in relationships, everything using this well, method. And I want to go on to that, but I'm thinking about the weight thing. That, that It's such a great idea, and it sounds, like you say, it sounds so simple, but it's really, you're putting limits. Are you talking about the cookie thing, not eating at a meeting, mm. or maybe never eating? You, could you say, and I'm never going to eat while I'm in my car. I'm not saying I'm never going to eat another yes. cookie or I, whatever I'm going to eat. I'll continue to eat, but I'm placing limits or restrictions on where I'm going to do that eating. That you can do. Yeah, and one of mine is not to eat standing up because I would eat in line. You know, I'd be there with my muffin. By the time I got to pay for it, I'd eaten it. I hadn't even registered that I'd eaten it. You know, and I have an exception. If I'm at a cocktail party, I'm going to have something to eat standing up. But I, I sit down to eat. I make sure I know that I'm eating. I, I try to – another one of mine was, you know, my first resolution was one of my one of my resolutions, the first way I framed it, you spoke about framing earlier, was – to eat slowly. Well, it's very kind of to chew slowly. That's very sort of unattractive, you know. And I knew I ate very fast. I was done before anybody else. And, you know, then I would be eating out of the bread basket or whatever. And But I reframed that to dine leisurely and savor my food and drink. You know, who wouldn't want to do that? So, you know, the focus is on pleasure, enjoying food, making the enjoyment last, savoring. And that had a huge effect on me just personally because I tend to rush at everything I do. And so by changing that one behavior and isolating it, I start to think about all the situations in which I sort of deprive myself of pleasure just by rushing out of habit. Well, you're this a very one... driven, obviously, and focused and successful person. And so, you know, that I guess you call the alpha woman. I mean, I'm labeling it that. But uh, so you've but you've taken this whole in very well. You started out well. Di- I don't want to use the word dieting, but losing weight. Mm. Um, let's take another category because um, I think one of the things, and you talked about becoming more organized. Well, what mm. about? And this is another one that you mentioned in the book, but saving money because it seems to be that's a huge problem today with most Americans. Nobody's it's saving money. It's a real topic of you know what are you going to do when you retire that kind of stuff. So, well, you're at Goldman Sachs, so you're the perfect person to ask. Besides that, so how well, we, you know, yeah. we all we all have to live within our means, right? And you know, saving money, um, you know, we waste money out of habit. So basically, the thing is, you're on a kind of autopilot all day, right? Most of your life is managed by autopilot. Like when you get up, you don't have to think about how to tie your shoes. You don't have to think about locking the door, you can find your way to the bus stop with nary a conscious thought, right? When you try to change something about your life, um, you're shaking up that autopilot. And that autopilot is very efficient. It leaves, you know, a certain part of your mind free for big problem solving and things like that. And willpower, you know, though we berate ourselves um, for, for saying, oh, you know, I just didn't have enough willpower, as if it's a character flaw. Willpower is a limited mental resource. It's part of a mental resource pool, which includes active decision, you know, active 
initiative, and decision-making. That's all one mental resource pool. And the more, you know, decisions you make all day, uh, an active initiative you show and willpower you draw on, the faster you draw down all those things. So autopilot is a great thing because it keeps you from drawing on that very limited store of decision-making and active initiative. But when you decide to change something about yourself, like your spending habits, you are trying to make conscious something that's been unconscious before. It could be you spend money when you're out with a particular friend shopping. It could be that at the end of a day when you're depleted from decision-making and you wander into the mall, you end up with a lot of purchases or what is more common now and was common with me, shopping on the Internet late at night. Tired. Yes. End of the day, right? Made a lot of decisions, showed a lot of active initiative that tamped down your willpower. Uh, and so then you make these impulse purchases. Sometimes I have a box arrive. I didn't even know what I could hardly remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now I remember, right? Yeah. So for me, one change I made was not getting on, not allow myself to do personal shopping on the internet after 10 o'clock at night. If I have to order light bulbs, that's one thing, but I'm not going to browse around, right? Um, another one for me, as funny as it sounds, is not to pay an ATM fee. You know, because I, you know, you say, okay, I'm picking out $100 and it costs $3 to take it out. You think, well, it's $3, I don't have much time. But it's 3%. 3% on $100. 3% after tax, right? Mm-hmm. If you got a 3% tax out, you wouldn't be happy. And yet many people, you know, just withdraw from the most convenient. Again, it's personal. It's very personal to your own behavior. You have to sort of look at your own routine. A lot of people spend when they're in situations where, you know, the, the, the salesperson can make you feel pressured to spend more money. Um, you know, I certainly had that sometimes, you know, and, and I practice saying, oh, that's more than I want to spend today. I actually practice when, when I'm sort of encouraged to sort of get upsell to say, you know, that's more than I want to spend today. And I say it right away. And that helps the salesperson. But I had to practice doing it because I felt, you know, like many people feel that, oh, well, in this shop, most people spend more money than I'm willing to spend. And instead, just Establishing that, or so Caroline. So every time you go shopping, let's say you will say that that's you. That's sort of the initial thing that you say to the salesperson, and then you. Well, go only from there. if they show I mean, me something more. You know, when you have that moment where you're looking at something, and then they show you something, and you look at the tag, let's say, and it's way more than you meant to spend. You know, I think in the past sometimes I would try it on anyway. You know, I would, but I, I, I now I say, or oh, I'm looking for a gift, and I'm looking at let's say one piece of jewelry, and they show you something else that's much more expensive. I just say, that's more than I want to spend today. I said it over Christmas when I went to get, you know, some caviar. I was looking at the American caviar. They showed me some more. You know, I say, you know, oh no, that's more than I want to spend today. But I had to practice saying it, and and so again, it comes from. It's very important. It comes from observing your own behavioral routine and under what circumstances you overspend. You know, when are you tempted? You're at budget, but somebody asks you to go out and do something. You know, what do you do to compensate for that? And all of us have, you know, the, or, or we shop at the store that's nearest when we know if we went a few blocks further, um, we would get a better deal. So it, it, it's really sort of, again, looking at, rather than just making the same resolution that everyone in the country makes to spend less, and we're all different people, make a specific resolution about a situation in which you spend too much and sort of reform your autopilot around that one area and then move on to another one. And you'll end up wasting less money. And when you do this, because I think some of these New Year, most of the New Year's resolutions things, they tell you just write a list or whatever of what you you know you want to lose weight, you want to save money. So what you're saying is you really have to. It's tailor made to who you are and what your habits are. You really should sit down 
and spend time deciding and really taking a look at what your habits are, where you spend your money, how, what you're, I mean, as simple as you're saying, that's too much, you know, I don't want to spend that much money or whatever it is, but you really have to um, take a little time to kind of evaluate your own habits. Is that, isn't that part right. of it? Yeah. And what, yeah, what are the triggers? So like if we, yeah. you know, let's take organization again or productivity. So one thing that would happen to me, and I should emphasize, um, or let's take what, the book is full of other people's stories. So a lot of people began practicing this method, you know, um, because I was, I was doing it, I was sharing results, other people started doing it, and there are a lot of great, great and funny stories in the book about it. But like, let's take, um, there was one story in the book about a person who was passed over for promotion at work and was told that, it was because she was a bit, you know, she, she had a bit too much of a negative attitude for this leadership position. And this person thought that was very unfair. Um, but when she thought about it uh, and that she complained, you know, that she did a lot of complaining at work. And she thought it was unfair because everybody complained, she thought. And she, but she, decided, she had been doing this micro-resolution thing in other areas, but so she just made, decided to make a micro-resolution in this area and sort of test her own hypothesis. And she made a very interesting resolution, which was not to be the first to complain at work, not to be the first. So the very first, she didn't say again, I'm never going to complain again, because if you're a complainer, you probably complain about everything. But she said, I won't be the first. The next day, there was a management decision was announced that she thought would cause a lot of complaining, and she sat back and waited for someone else to complain, and nobody else complained. And she realized in that moment, from that one alteration of behavior, that without realizing it, she was sort of fostering that kind of complaint. And so, you know, again, whatever, anything in relationships comes down, you know, relationships you have with people come down to established patterns. I, I guarantee you, if, you, if you're used to saying, I told you so, if you were to change your behavior with your partner, let's say, not to say I told you so when you proved right or all the variations of that, that would be a game changer, right? right. And it would take willpower and mindfulness and attention to catch yourself. And it would probably affect many other areas of your life too. I think the thing I've found is, Catherine, there's no such thing as an insignificant behavioral change that you sustain. You make a permanent change in your response to something, whether it's a cue to, you know, scream at your kid, you know, a cue to defend yourself at work, a cue to spend more to feel like you belong in a certain situation, a cue to eat more. If you master one of those cues and reform your autopilot, it has a profound effect. Um, One of mine was just to hang up my coat when I came home. Um, I had clothes on chairs in my room. You know, I'd, in the weekend, I would have to hang all these things up that I hadn't handled during the week. And the, the, only my first one was just to tell myself when I came home with my coat, it's really just as fast to hang it up. The rest took care of itself. Once I had that habit of hanging up the coat, it really bothered me to see things on chairs because it wasn't any more part of what I was used to seeing. And and it became a pattern. It's really just as fast to hang up clothes when I take them off. It's really just as fast to file this immediately than to let it sit in a pile on the desk. And I don't want to give the impression that everything in my life is handled because it isn't. But it's amazing how when you make a shift, it ripples through other things. Yeah, the ripple effect is very powerful, very strong. It's almost like when you decide to, if one dec- you want to redecorate and you just maybe mm. buy a new chair, suddenly everything else in the room looks shabby. It didn't look shabby before, but it does in contrast with the new chair. Um, 
So changing one thing does change everything. You're right. It doesn't have to be a big thing. So give us some more examples because I know people like to hear example. I mean, you've given some of your own personal, which is great, but a couple more like in the book, a personal, like a personal relationship, uh, not at work, but relationship with your partner. Or, um, okay. Yeah. So, um, I thought it was very interesting that the discussion of cooking in the kitchen that I heard at the tail end of the uh-huh. other discussion. One of mine was, I, I, you know, I had not made a, at a certain point, I, I, you know, I'd come home from work. I'd be at, I'm, uh, doing my job all day. I'd come home. I'd make dinner, which I think is very important to have a family meal. And, you know, I'd be kind of stressed out to get this meal going and everything. And, and my husband would come in and say, you know, you left the light on in the basement, you know, <laughs> this morning. And I'd, be, I'd feel like this load of resentment, you know. And, but I didn't express resentment. What I said is, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And then I would launch into a long explanation of how it was that I managed to leave the house without turning the light off in the basement, which was really kind of a, I was doing this, I was doing that. It was really kind of a guilt-trippy thing when I analyzed it. You know, I was really trying to make him feel bad for bringing it up. And then he would go kind of quiet, and then the whole evening would have sort of a sour edge. And I'd been doing this micro-resolution thing in a lot of areas, but I hadn't done a relationship one. And it occurred to me when this happened, gee, what would happen if I just said, oh, when he told me, or got it? You know, I was treating it as a gotcha, you know, and not a piece of information. It's kind of like, you didn't get this right. And, you know, boy, what a change. I learned a lot just about who I am and making that change. So when it happened again, something like that happened, I said, okay, and I just went on. And I, because I didn't, and my resolution rule is don't apologize when you don't mean it. I didn't mean it, so I didn't say it. I just acknowledged it. And then the evening went fine. And the funniest thing happened, my husband's behavior changed because he would sort of then, since I wasn't sucking all the air out of the room with my lengthy explanations about how a perfect person like me could have come to have left the light on in the basement, my husband then would say, you know, it's not a big deal, but I thought you'd want to know about it. He filled the gap, right? And so we always try to change the other person, but the other person, you have better luck changing that person if you change your response to that person, I discovered. And this carried through in work. You know, if I get feedback at work, that's what we call it now, feedback. It's not criticism. It's developmental feedback. You know, I'm much more likely just to acknowledge it. If, even if I don't think it's fair, I say, oh, I'm, I'm glad you told me that. Um, I'm going to think about that. Or I might agree right away. But what I don't do is explain why the criticism isn't valid or, you know. And, and so these are the things. And you get to know yourself so much better. And because you're only channeling your willpower against a couple of narrow targets at a time, do two of them at a time that can be in different areas, and you keep them for four to six weeks at a time until you can establish a pattern, and then you go on to another two, that's 20 behavioral changes or more you could make in a single year. That's huge. That is, base, I mean, those two, I mean, that, that, the examples, and this is the, it's almost, we have about a minute left, actually. Mm. I mean, that, those are perfect examples of uh, small move, big change. And, right. Uh, but, but, Carol, and your website, because we, we do have to say goodbye, but uh, carolinearnold.com, that's the website we can go to. Yeah, I think it's probably, it's Caroline L. Arnold or smallmovebigchange.com gets you there. But okay. you will need Caroline L. Arnold. I'm on Twitter at Caroline L. Arnold. I'm on Facebook at Small Move Big Change, um, and the book is Small Move Big Change, Using Micro-Resolutions to Transform Your Life Permanently, um, and you can get it through Amazon or any of the local book outlets. 
that's fantastic, and I am ready to get off and start mm. making some of these changes, suggestions. They're great. Um, They're a lot the of fun. Yeah, <laughs> well, a lot of fun, easy to do, and it does, I mean, you can make big changes with these small moves. Right. Um, anyway, have a great day, and um, thanks so much for being on the show. And thank you for having me. Take care. We're, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America, Variety.com, and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.